0: You lose weight, it comes back. You lose it again, and it comes back again. If this cycle sounds familiar to you, there's a better, more sustainable way to lose weight. Today, I want to introduce you to RowBody. It's not your typical weight loss program. Instead of gimmicks, they offer access to the most popular weight shots on the market. But here's the real deal. They pair these shots with simple lifestyle changes, helping you lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. It says a lot to me on how much they emphasize healthy lifestyle changes, because that's the key to making it sustainable. Plus, what also says a lot to me is over 200,000 people have already seen results with Robody. So what sets Robody apart? The support. They handle all the insurance stuff for you and give you access to a provider whenever you need them. And the best part is you can sign up online from home, no doctor's appointments and no waiting rooms. Say goodbye to the days of your weight yo-yoing. With Robody, losing weight is straightforward and sustainable. Take the first step today and say hello to a healthier, happier you. Kickstart your weight loss journey the right way and head to row.co slash I do. That's R O dot C O slash I D O. Sign up today for just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Remember, medication costs are separate. That's row.co slash I do.
1: What's going on, guys?
0: Welcome to I Do Podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
1: And we are still here in sunny Oregon. Hey, excited, hot Oregon, sunny, <laughs> hot Oregon. And when this goes out, we will have seen the total solar eclipse. This will we're recording this before but when we publish it it'll be after so yeah. that's coming up actually in a few days where we happen to be close to where that solar eclipse is happening what's so, it called
0: the the meta no the something center the what is it well the epicenter Oh, epicenter yeah but
1: that well there's a band of okay we're, this isn't the <laughs> nasa podcast <laughs> we won't get into it but i'm sure you'll Have seen it on the news because it's the first one in the continental US in 79, first one in our lifetime. So we are looking forward to that, and that'll be a cool experience. And yeah, everything is good in the hood, as they say. (laughs) The name (laughs) of the town is Hood River. So, uh, (laughs) so yeah, and we're just hanging out and enjoying life. And we had a great interview today with. Dr. Jeremy Sherman. And Dr. Sherman is a PhD who researches and writes about decision making from the origins of life to everyday relating. And he has a kind of unique perspective outside of anyone we've had on, in that he's doing this research and and this broad look at at things. And he's written over 1,100 articles for psychology today. He has a couple books and very knowledgeable about a lot of facets of the human experience. And obviously relationships are a big part of that. So we talk specifically about how to avoid turning a disagreement into a full blown fight.
0: Yeah, I think it was super helpful for us. I'm sure for those of you listening, if you don't get into arguments, then you probably won't find this podcast helpful, but...
1: Which is no one.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> everyone argues, whether it's with your partner or a coworker or your family. So all these tips that Jeremy has given us are super helpful to implement into all your relationships, really.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, everyone has a disagreement. It might not be a whole, full fight and, and, and good for you. And when I say fight, I mean obviously physical violence is never tolerable. But you know, just an escalation in argument—you're shouting or you're letting your emotions get out of control. And he goes about and talks about some very specific things we can say and do. And the the one that I want to just preview is the yumius so it's at first he said that I was like, "What?" It's you, me, or us, and it's stopping and pausing when a argument is is beginning, and asking yourself, uh, and if both partners are doing this, then it's even better. Is this coming from you, me, or us? And then understanding where where that is coming from, where this disagreement is is being internalized, and then moving forward from there because that way you know okay this is this is my issue and 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 still doesn't make it go away but you can stop blaming and and it's just a good pause and then he talks about mirroring your partner and and i really like that one i think that's a a great exercise so we won't go too much into it and we'll let jeremy explain it in the episode as always thank you for listening we really appreciate you guys
0: Yeah, and if you guys haven't signed up for our 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge yet, head on over to our website, idopodcast.com forward slash 14, where you can sign up today. We send you a daily email. Each day is a challenge for your relationship to help you be stronger and happier, and it's really fun. We did it together a couple weeks ago. We're still encouraging our listeners to participate and try it because we know it's super valuable and will really help your relationship.
1: Yeah. Check that out and enjoy today's show.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 licensed therapists. Get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on a path to a happier life. For $30 off your first month, visit Talkspace.com forward slash I do. That's Talkspace.com forward slash I do. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us on the show today.
2: Great to be here.
1: So, Jeremy, we've given our listeners a little overview about your work in helping people improve their relationships. So why don't you take a minute, tell us about yourself and why you enjoy the work that you do.
2: Well, that's a big question. My work, broadly defined, is thinking about how living systems deal with challenges, and that can be everything from origins of life research, that is, I think about how the very first organisms dealt with the challenges that life presents, all the way out to social organization, but that obviously passes through humans and on way to social organizations, couples. So I I think about it all and I draw interesting parallels from my perspective across the spectrum, thinking about the challenges we deal with. One of the challenges that even at the Origins of Life we deal with is how to couple up, what to join, what not to join, which gets right on to our topic, which is relationships
1: Well, that's an interesting perspective to be able to go so broad and then, yeah, we're going to narrow it down and talk about relationships today and specifically how to prevent a disagreement from turning into a fight. And I know Sarah and I have been there. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, I think pretty much anyone that is a normal human being has had a little disagreement or it can be seem maybe a little bit big and it just blows up into a fight so why don't we start by having you give us an example of this and then we'll talk about how we can solve it
2: it sounds good let's see well, let me speak personally for a moment. I'm not currently in a relationship. I have basically retired from relationship, but I've had a great run. I was married for 17 years. I have three children out of that marriage. We're still friends, and I've had great relationships over the years. Being the kind of guy I am, though, I'm a, I'm, I'm a challenging partner because I spent, I've written over 1,200 articles on the kinds of pitfalls that people fall into, and I'm very up at- to them even in my own relationships so I will find myself in interaction with a partner or I have found myself in interaction with a partner when my partner says something that I feel like commenting on but this is like the challenge that any psychotherapist would have if they were partnered which is that I speak with some authority but you can't do that in partnership you can't you can't play couples counselor on your own relationship. That's one of the reasons why you go find another couples counselor. It's just not right to play that. So, I have used my relationships as basically a lab for thinking about my own personal development but also about how to avoid disagreements becoming fights, persistent problems, escalating and all of that. I would say that a vital statistic to be following in your relationship to tell whether it's likely to turn out well or not is whether the fights get shorter and easier with time or whether they get longer and more protracted and more escalated. Over time. And I've got some ideas about how to go at that. But if you if you're looking for an example, it can be any situation in which you are drawn to step out of the details and make a general comment, either about how the other person is interacting with you in general, or about your process together. That is, it's process talk. Once you shift into process talk, it becomes kind of dangerous ground. Not that you should avoid it, but you should at least know the promise and perils of process talk, how to do it in a way that that is more likely to de-escalate it than escalate it.
1: Yeah, it has got to present some unique challenges coming into your own personal relationships with all of the knowledge that you have, because I know even the little bit that Sarah and I have gained knowledge over the last three years through interviewing experts like yourself, we find that we take that knowledge and then you're kind of constantly analyzing different situations and you're right, you need that third party to really help out. And let's talk about this ability to avoid the the blow up, avoiding the fight. And a lot of, you kind of mentioned it, but talking about how we communicate and de-escalating rather than escalating a disagreement. So what might a communication sound like? And maybe you can give us like a specific example to de-escalate a simple disagreement.
2: Sure. So just a little bit of context for that. A disagreement comes up between you and your partner and it's it's in context. That is, you've been living together for a while. And let's say you don't have an outside therapist, and let's say you may you may not need one. You're going to work it out with your, uh, between yourselves. Therapy is expensive. You'll go online and find your podcast, for example. You're going to look for your own techniques. But let's say you're in the middle of one of those things where you are, well, the, the term for it is going meta. You're no longer talking or thinking about the details. You up-level to think about how you're thinking or you to talk about how you're talking. Now, at that point, there's great promise and there's great peril as well. So if you notice a pattern in your relationship, that's where it's going to up-level. But the main thing you have to watch out for is acting as though you are the objective observer, counseling the other person on what's going on it's very dangerous to play that role. Think of it this way. Imagine you are two lawyers in a courtroom and you're advocating your case. And one of you slides up into the judge's chair and says, let me tell you how this should be adjudicated. Let me tell you who won this, who wins this court case. It's me. Or imagine that you're two guys playing tennis, and one of you suddenly is going to play the role of referee. Very dangerous thing to do, very threatening to your partner. And what they'll do is they will pull rank in turn. The most important thing to do, if you want to avoid escalating a disagreement, is to avoid mounting your high horse instantly and then dismounting slowly. That is, you cannot simply claim the higher moral ground, the higher observational ground, and simply assume you are the one who is seeing clearly and your partner isn't. It's extremely threatening at close range.
0: So if you're the partner in the situation where you're not being attacked, but your partner is the one that's going meta, as you say, how do you manage the situation so that they get off their high horse and actually start communicating like adults?
2: Well, the natural response is to get on a higher horse. And one thing about going meta is that there is no highest horse. That is, we can claim to have the last word, but you can only get a last word about the last word. So there's never really any last word. So that's the natural impulse. And so let's see if I can give you an example. Suppose I'm in a conflict with a partner, and my partner declares to me, as if he's she's a neutral observer, you're being defensive. Now, she doesn't qualify it by saying, I get the impression you're being defensive. We don't have to qualify everything we we say, if it's raining outside, if it's a downpour, and I say it's raining, you're not going to say, well, you think it's raining. But in conflict, it's really important to put that subjective qualifier on it, because the conflict is when people are going to claim pseudo-objectivity. They're going to pretend that their subjective opinion is observable, objective fact, So, how would I respond if my partner said, you're being defensive? I might try saying, well, I understand that you've got that impression of me. That is, there are ways of suggesting or hinting that it is a subjective opinion. Of course, that can also be threatening too. If I said, yeah, that's what you think, that's not exactly going to work. I mean, that's going to tend to escalate it. A lot of what I think it comes down to is accumulating trust over time. And a capacity to address what I call the you question is the problem you, me, or us. We have a very natural tendency, when frustrated, to assume the problem is outside of ourselves. That is, if I'm frustrated, it must be you. If you don't immediately agree with my opinion about something that just happened, you are just being defensive. That's the, uh, that's the natural assumption, is that it's you. It usually takes a few minutes to get around to in a healthy couple to to return to the question, Well is the problem? Does the problem originate in you, me, or in just differences between us so that 's the umeius question, and the couples that are healthiest, I find are the ones that can return to that humius question pretty quickly. I even have a five minute rule. It is fine for me or my partner to Assume it's me for five minutes or maybe five hours or something like that. But sometime after that, either one of us, both of us, have got to be able to return to the Yumius question, to explore what happened and to do it in a way where we don't act as though we are the observers, the objective observers, who have determined scientifically that the problem is obviously the other person because I'm bothered, if you understand what I mean.
1: Absolutely, And, and I like the new word, Umius. First I was like, what? What?" <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that makes... Yes, it's not Latin. <laughs> yeah, It's not Latin. It makes a lot of sense. It's almost like we should ask ourselves that question the sooner the better. Like as soon as that disagreement comes up, obviously that's not going to happen every time, but the sooner that we can say, hey, where is this coming from? It, it, maybe even literally stopping and trying to stop yourself and that's where you know being mindful and present can be so valuable but it's so easy to just not ask that question and just go down the the righteous road get on the high horse do all that and it it just escalates I know speaking personally so fast that if we're able to just pause and ask the umious question that can be a really important thing to do in a relationship.
2: Yeah, that's my sense of it. And also an appreciation for the universal natural tendency, natural human tendency to translate ouch into you have done me wrong or ouch into you have violated a moral principle and I want into you owe. That is this appetite to treat things as though uh, treat our subjective preferences as though they are objective truths runs very high in humans, and to forgive ourselves for that is the point of that five minute rule that is I mean, I've been working at this stuff for decades and and I'm a guy I've got testosterone and all that stuff going on. I know that I can get by now i I've cultivated the ability to get back to the umes question quickly, but not on a dime, not on a dime. If, you're, if your nose is, is snubbed by someone, psychically or otherwise, you're not going to wonder whether you bumped into them. You're just going to assume they bumped into you. You know, you're striding along and something thwarts you. That's the natural tendency is to look outside. So the five minute rule is, and that five minutes is is often best taken apart. That is, if you can create space between the two of you for a little bit, enough time to cool down. But time alone is not enough. I do think you need to understand what the time is for. And I'm arguing that it's for getting back to the Yumius question.
1: Yeah, taking a pause is always a good thing. Like I said, we get emotionally triggered and then we are a victim of our biology and our emotions and they just take over whether it's anger hurt and and it can cloud our thinking and certainly how we're going to relate and communicate with our partner. So taking that pause, asking a question like, where is this coming from? Is it you, me or us can be so valuable. And I want to talk specifically to the person and we've all interacted with someone who always has to be right. And maybe the person is, this is more directed at the person on the receiving end. So how can someone navigate that if they have a partner or even a friend, coworker, who is just always right? What are some things that or always has to be right, proving a point? What are some things that the other recipient can say or do to de-escalate that? Well,
2: that's a very hot topic for me these days. I pay a lot of attention to what I call the, the know-it-all formula, You don't actually have to know much in order to employ it. It's very appealing to employ it. It gets employed in the service of any cause. It can be a spiritual, religious, political, philosophical cause. It's not about the cause. It's about this ability to... It's the lure of seeing a path to the higher ground from which you are finally freed from all doubts. It is always the other person's problems. And you can imagine how in this era, that would be an important thing to focus on. In my opinion, for example, that was largely the appeal of Donald Trump. That is, I think that's really what sells him most. The formula is very simple. It's something I mentioned earlier, which is that you play supreme judge in every debate you enter. You're willing to say or do everything, anything, and you project and notice how simple it is. I, I've even listed the fifty-three moves that you would use to always deflect any doubt suggested for you onto the other person. I mean I've I've even been working on a on a deck of Trump cards that you can use to to pull this off. And like I say, you can do it for any cause. It's not about what Trump believes. I, I have leftist friends, I have spiritual friends who employ it. It's the know it all strategy. Now, to your question, oh, so, so my point is, it's really simple to learn. You don't have to know a lot to, to employ these three techniques. Be willing to say and do anything, play supreme judge, adjudicating every case that you're actually a, an advocate in. That is, you play the judge over over every debate you participate in, and you project. It's always the other person. So what do you do about that you point it out. You actually go meta. You say, this is what you're doing. And what's interesting about doing that is that they will respond by affirming exactly what you're saying. (laughs) So I've been interested for a while in what I call tar babies. A tar baby is where you criticize someone in a way that they cannot possibly respond to without the criticism sticking better. So for example, the the easiest example is if if someone says you're being defensive, you either go along with it or you say, no, I'm not, which affirms it. Well, if you say say you're using the know-it-all formula and you concentrate tenaciously on that, and the other person is going to only reaffirm that they're doing that. Now, George Bernard Shaw said, never fight with a pig, you'll just get dirty and the pig likes it which is fine advice as far as it goes. The problem is that sometimes you do have to fight with what Shaw called a pig, what I'm calling someone who employs the know-it-all formula, this escape from doubt forevermore. That is, there will be situations in which you can't escape. You can't not fight with them. Never say never. So it's become kind of an obsession for me how you deal with this. And this is the... You know, I've got a few other techniques, but the main one I would say is you go meta. And you say, it's my opinion that you're using this know-it-all formula. And they'll say, no, I'm not. You're just, and they'll go on from there. And you say, well, see, that's part of the know-it-all formula. That's being defensive like that. And then they'll say, well, you do it too. And you'll say, well, that's part of the formula. Now, does it always work? No. Does it ever convince them? Rarely. That's the point. They're not convincible. I mean, there are people who are champions of freedom, but the freedom that matters most to them is the freedom to never have to learn again. And I understand. Life is a, very, it's a white-knuckle ride. It's a very anxious affair. And so the appeal of this know-it-all formula, again, in the service of any cause, is profound. I've never actually met a philosophical belief, spiritual belief, political belief that can't be exploited as the particular branding for the use of the know-it-all formula. That is, everything that we ever think might be a useful answer can be abused as a new vehicle for exploiting the know-it-all formula.
1: So it seems a bit, I guess, fatalistic, or (laughs) like there's not many options besides going meta. And certainly if someone is acting this way in your life that is not your partner. To me, it's a lot easier. You go meta, they don't want to interact, whatever. Okay, you know, don't don't hang out with them. Try not to be in their presence. But if it's your partner, it seems like it can be incredibly frustrating and difficult and strain on a relationship. And maybe it's not even all the time, you know, that they're constantly the know-it-all or trying to win the argument or being the judge, but are there any things besides going meta or just ways to get them say they are someone that that is open to learning. How can it be addressed?
2: Well that that becomes a test. So there are there are partnerships that one can leave eventually and there are partnerships that one can't leave eventually. For example, if you have a child who's employing this and it's Not just a phase. You can be an ex-parent. You're going to be with this kid, at least until they're 18. So there are situations where you can't leave it. So a lot of what you're after is a way to determine whether they are able to learn. I came up with an idea for how I would deal with that in other situations, but I think would apply as well in relationship. Basically, you ask: Are you 100% certain of your opinion? If not, can you tell me what the minor fraction of a a doubt is? And if you are 100% certain, there's no talking to you. I mean, why would I waste my time and yours trying to talk to someone who's 100% certain? I'm not 100% certain about anything. I have a rule that no matter how certain I am of a bet, I'm still more certain that it is a bet. No matter how certain I am of a bet, I'm still more certain that it is a bet. But there are people who are proud to be 100% certain of something. But that's one of the test questions on whether they are willing to even hear an, an argument. And if they're not, you got a problem, but you're best off humoring, taking psychic distance, if you're stuck in such a situation with a partner. Now, what I've noticed also about partnership, it's it's very high stakes. It's so intense. You're in it for the long haul. All the more reason why you should never lie to your partner, but also all the more reason why you have to be very careful, diplomatic, and even to some extent not telling the truth. That is, the stakes go up on telling the truth and the stakes go up on not telling the truth in a partnership. This is one of the challenges. The stakes go up on negotiating aggressively. It's an odd and you could say sad thing about the situation. You know, you go on dating sites and you find these people who say they don't play games and they're honest and... (laughs) They're kind and all of that. Probably so in everyday life, but relationship is such a high-stakes commitment. You have pledged to feel a certain way about someone for eternity that you will, he- you will hear people pull out whatever is in their potential arsenal to get their point across, to maintain their dignity, to win in negotiations. So I try to keep that in mind. It's not the other person necessarily so much as the nature, the framing of a romantic commitment, a marriage or something like that. The stakes go up. It's it's a reason to actually forgive the sound of know it all in your partner. It's not it's not necessarily that they have a, a personality problem. It may just be that in this context the stakes are so high that people pull out all this sort of stuff. But it but one way or another, what I would suggest is moving towards a framing where you can return to the Yumius question. If you can do that. And back to this question about does time apart always help? Yeah, to some extent, but I've certainly also seen situations in which time apart is spent fuming and actually becoming, you know, rehearsing the things you will say when you resume the argument. So that's why I'm suggesting here that if you know what that time apart is for, it's for, it's for the five-minute rule. You need a couple of minutes to calm down and then return to the exploration of whether the problem originates in you, me, or us. And also a separate question, which is what will address the problem? You know, who is best off re- addressing the problem? Here's an example. I don't like onions. I don't know why. I never have liked them. That's my fault. That's my issue when we're cooking together in the house, that might mean that my partner, even though she's not got no responsibility whatsoever for my distaste of onions, doesn't cook them for me. And likewise, when I cook for her, I might cook with onions and then separate some for me. So what I'm saying is, the yummiest question is actually two questions. Where does the problem originate? And since where it originates is not necessarily what will resolve it, sometimes we make Accommodations to each other, even though the problem is in the other person, I'm going to take care of it. Those two questions to come back to that thing over and over, and to practice and to learn how to bring yourself back to the Umius question. And if you can't do that, I don't know how. I don't know how you resolve it. I just know that that's the best thing I've ever found for de-escalating disputes, keeping them from becoming persistent fights. So you
0: know, Chase had mentioned that. Well, like all listeners I'm sure that are that are listening have gone through these types of situations, and I'll be you know the first to say that I can tend to get defensive when it comes to certain topics or certain conversations. so is there besides you know doing the umeius between the two of us after conversation, is there anything that I can imply into my thinking? so that I don't immediately get defensive? And I don't know what the terminology would be, but something to kind of help me reason or help me be more mindful of what Chase is trying to communicate with me without getting defensive.
2: Well, yes. First of all, I'm guessing you know well the Gottman Institute's work on relationships and their idea of the four horsemen, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Does that ring a bell?
0: Yes, Mm mm-hmm.
2: Right. Okay. Well, I have a problem with that framing because they're depicted often in their material as though those are objectively observable. Now, every one of those has a counterpart that's considered tolerable, admirable, useful, etc. Criticism, constructive criticism. Defensiveness, defending yourself. I would never want to be in a relationship with someone who assumes every time I defend myself, I'm being defensive, you know, there's a really interesting parallels like that all around. What's the difference between rationalizing and being rational. It's not obvious. So, but there is something, obviously, and I, I'm guessing you also know this technique. It, when I'm teaching psychology, I tell my students that it has saved me easily $200,000 over the course of my life and lots of grief. The idea of mirroring, you, I'm guessing you've dealt with that one, right? No. It sometimes goes by a different name. But basically, it's where you play advocate for your your partner. So you're in a fight, and you stop in, in the middle and say, wait a second, before we go any further, I just want to make sure I understand you. Completely independent of whether I agree with you or disagree with you, I just want to see if this is what you're saying. And then you say your partner's opinion as if you were the best possible lawyer for your partner. And... Then afterwards, you stop and you say, did I understand you correctly? And they'll either say, wow, you you know, they can say anything from, wow, you said it better than I could say it myself, or they might say, no, this part was not what I really feel, or they might say, well, yeah, but that's another thing, and then go on to something else altogether. It's not a foolproof strategy, but it, it helps a lot because it makes it so they can no longer Assume that if you disagree with them, you don't understand them. You've just given them foolproof proof that you understood them. You can't actually say what they're saying. You can't make their case for them if you didn't actually hear their case. So it's what I call a poser-proof practice. You know, you can't fake it. You have to be able to know what they're saying in order to say it. It tends to also calm you down to say it, especially if you have caveated up front saying look this is independent of whether i agree disagree with you i mean i have gotten to where i can mirror someone and then say after they say i you know i you definitely understood me and i say and i still disagree wholeheartedly and here's why ideally it would bring out the same in your partner where you mirror them and they 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 feel almost obliged to mirror you back suddenly you're both making each other's cases for each other and you haven't lost any ground because you've never you haven't spoken to it yet to whether you agree with it you're just trying to find out whether you understand each other well this is an extremely useful technique and it also makes it subjective it, oh, by the way you have to do it in a way that's not the least bit satire of your partner you can't say, "Let me see if I understand you." You're whining that I am always the problem and that you never are. No, that that won't not work. You really have to be their advocate. Yeah, you your goal is to be able to say it in a way such that they come away saying, "Wow, you said it better than I could say it myself." I mean, I've I've saved myself jobs that way. Someone once made a complaint against me, and I made his case against me better than he did himself. And he was just floored. Wow. <laughs> Man, I got to keep my job. He was let go a couple of weeks later. But anyway, the heart of it is that is a very useful technique. And I urge you to not assume either that all of your defenses are mere defenses, or that they're all defensive. This is my problem with the Gottman work. It doesn't speak to that. It simply says, well, these are the problems, and you want to avoid them. Well, sorry, that's exactly the crux of where our debates are. I mean, you know, someone says, you're just being defensive. And the other person says, no, I'm not. I'm defending myself. Well, where do you go from there? Well, one thing you don't go to is playing judge. It says, well, no, I really know you're the one. This is why I have to say, I think you're being defensive or my my sense of it is you're being defensive. It's it's going to work a whole lot better than proclaiming as if you're the scientist in the room that obviously it should be obvious to any clear-thinking human being that you're the defensive one here.
1: Yeah, I need to work on leading with that cuz I I will say, Sarah, you're being defensive and that is not moving us in a positive direction. So Definitely.
2: Yeah, it's a very rethink. the absence of the caveat is fighting words. Yeah, that's b- that's, making... that's dangerous. You just we don't get to play that role with each other. That well, one of the predicaments for all of us. There is no final final arbiter, no judge. When we're in conflict with each other or negotiation at any level, you know, we we set up off the hierarchies, authorities, courts, supreme courts. Etc. But at the level of a couple, we don't get to play the objective observer. We aren't that.
1: Yeah, keeping that in mind is is really important. You know, remember you're not the judge. Get off your high horse and get on the same level. And I I really like the mirroring because for a lot of reasons, but even just clarifying the position of your partner, it's a form of a higher level of communication, and it's kind of buying yeah. you time that okay let me clarify this is what you're saying and as you're doing that you're you're clarifying getting on the same page and it's just a little bit of time to let the emotions process you're not going off on a, an emotional tirade so definitely something valuable i i know we'll be able to use and and i think our listeners will too That's
2: good. It's good. Yeah, a word about judgment. There's a peculiar meme or virus going around these days, which is that you shouldn't be judgmental. What I like about that is that it's hypocritical. It's actually a paradoxical statement. Shouldn't is the judgment. So I've never really understood what it meant. If you mean you shouldn't get on your high horse and play supreme judge, I totally get it. That's what I've been advocating throughout this call. But as for being discerning, I think we all have to do it. I mean, one of the one of the Gottman for horses of the apocalypse is contempt. I'm sorry, I think that people will have contempt for other people. It will happen at close range when the stakes are high. I, have, I do not begrudge the slave his contempt for his master or her master. That's that's a natural response. We have a bunch of terms that are floating around in the psychological language that have negative connotations that are not fully deserved. Uh, Just to give you one more example, passive-aggressive, is it always bad? I think it's the only recourse sometimes. It's even the most diplomatic. If If you have no choice but to stay in a job or in the role of a slave, and if active aggressiveness is going to get you and your family killed then passive-aggressive is actually the right response (laughs) it's very important to keep in mind that it's not always it doesn't always it's not always a felony in fact the opposite of it is is at least as much of a problem which is making it impossible for your partner to voice their opinion such that their only recourse is passive aggressiveness i have a rule if you shame me For thinking what I think or feeling what I feel, you won't persuade me to stop thinking it and feeling it. You'll persuade me to keep you in the dark. You want to invite me to keep you in the dark? Is that really what you want? There's got to be room for that. And things like, well, you shouldn't be judgmental are ways of basically blocking the other person's heartfelt opinion basically another way of saying translating ouch into you are violating a moral law doesn't work or if it works it doesn't work to your advantage cuz you don't want to be kept in the dark you actually need to know what's going on in your partner
1: it's funny that the hypocrisy of telling someone not to be judgmental but it seems like and those those are all great points it seems like maybe when that is said it's that you don't want to be leading with that, that you're constantly in the forefront of your mind and judging your partner's actions, at least in the connotation of relationships and judgment. But certainly, yeah, I, I believe in, and I'm sure through your research and you well know that judgment is a natural part of, of who we are. It's how we survive. We we assess a situation. We, we try to read others. But you don't want to necessarily be leading with that judgment against your partner Is that right?
2: Well, something like that. I think that here's how I think about that in general. We've got a bunch of virtue and vice terms floating around, which are sometimes virtues and sometimes vice. I still have friends who say that love is the answer or compassion or empathy or things like that. Well, I don't think of love as the answer. I think of love as the question, what to love and what not to love. In fact, I don't even see how you could love everything all at once. Love takes work. It's not just lip service. And if you're going to love one thing, that's actually going to take work you don't have for something else. So the idea that love is the answer or that judgment is the problem. I'm only interested in the question of when to do them. What are the right contexts for judging? There may be situations in which judging right out is a good idea. I mean, I explore this stuff in depth because I don't think these answers are easy, and I don't think the alternatives are easy, too. I don't think there's a formula for when to judge and when not to, but I do know that I want to judge where it helps and not where it hurts, and so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do that, when you know, when to be open-minded, when to be closed-minded. These are, these are the tough judgment calls that, like I said at the beginning, have been of, of interest to me th- across the spectrum. Because even the earliest organisms have to be open to some things and close to others, and how they evolve the ability to be open to the right things, not the wrong things; close to the right things, not the wrong things. Fascinating question, and I'm still living it out. I mean, I just, I, and it's a kind of trial and error process figuring out. Oh, that time I judged too quickly. That time I judged too late. You know, both, we deal with those all the time. My my favorite piece of advice is the serenity prayer because it frames up the challenge that life has been dealing with all along and we're still dealing with it. The wisdom to know the difference between the situations that call for, let's say, assertiveness or surrender, judgment, which is what the courage to change something is, versus the serenity to accept things as they are, the non-judgmental. I'm much more interested in the dilemma of and how we deal with them, then I am in the, the formulas that people have proposed for how you deal with them like it was a recipe that always worked. In fact, I think that the focus on formulas stunts our growth on the real questions. You know, if you claim yourself to be someone who is a champion of love, and love is always the answer, you will not notice the various ways that you're unloving. You won't notice the real question, which is what to love and how those kinds of
1: questions these are all very obviously deep questions like you said you've been you've dedicated years and years to of thinking about them and it's it's fascinating really so we'll have to have you back on and and we'll do a deep dive into judgment maybe or what to love and definitely uh, from a philosophical angle interesting stuff but for now for today's episode We've had so much great information in this first part of the interview, and now we got to move forward to the Lasting Love Round. Before we get into the Lasting Love Round, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Talkspace. We all need to take a little bit better care of ourselves, and our mental health is no exception. Pretty much every guest on this show recommends talking to a therapist, either as an individual or a couple, to help improve Yourself in the relationships in your life. And that's why we're so excited to be working with TalkSpace. They're an online therapy company that makes it easy to connect with an experienced, licensed therapist that you're going to pick based on your preferences for as little as $32 a week.
0: And how cool is this? You can send your therapists text, audio, video messages, or even do live video chat. Talkspace therapists are fully licensed and go through rigorous screening processes, in addition to thousands of hours of supervised professional training. To match with your perfect therapist, go to talkspace.com forward slash I do. And as a special offer for our listeners, you can use the coupon code I do and get thirty dollars off your first month. And to show support for the podcast, that's talkspace.com forward slash I do talk space therapy for how we live today. What is one tool or practice our listeners can use on a daily basis to help improve their relationship?
2: Well, I would certainly say mirroring. That is the number one technique. If you are escalating towards a fight and you want to get out of it, just give voice out of curiosity, to your partner's perspective. Give healthy, encouraging voice to their perspective without agreeing or disagreeing with it. You simply say it. So it, This is a recipe. You simply say, before we go any further, I want to make sure I understood you. Not that I agree or disagree. I'm gonna set that aside. I just want to know, is this what you're saying? And then you say it as positively as you can, and you ask whether you said it, in a way that corresponds to what they're saying and then you move forward and you will find more often than not that you will move forward with greater progress, less escalation, more receptivity.
1: Is there a book or resource you could recommend for listeners who want to improve their relationship?
2: Well, so I haven't found the one book since I write about this stuff a lot. I do encourage taking a look at, I mean, mine is a peculiar perspective. And so for that, I mean, I've I've written a few books on it, not that those are particularly published at the moment. I've got one published, and I've got another one coming out with Columbia in another couple of weeks. But I would suggest looking at my blog site, and I'll soon have my podcast back up. But my blog site is With Psychology Today, and it's Ambigamy, Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. You'll see how that's been playing out in this in, in this conversation. Deeply romantic, I really want to connect with my partner. Deeply skeptical, I have to be careful. A partnership is a dangerous thing. You get partnered with the wrong person, or if you mismanage it, you're in for alimony payments and suffering and all that. We come at relationship with great receptivity and caution. And I think that's the natural state of things. I don't think that fear of intimacy is always unfounded. I think we have to balance in our lives between romanticism and skepticism. So that's where I would send people if they were interested more on this topic.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to have your blog linked on your show notes page at idopodcast.com. We've been married for almost three years now. Is there any advice you'd give newlyweds?
2: If you can keep this a learning process, and you seem like a couple that, that is, and if you stay away from those, the tendency to pull out whatever moral absolute serves you in the moment, because they aren't absolutes, you'll define.
1: What advice would you give our single listeners who want to find a happy relationship?
2: Now, there's a challenging question these days. I guess the one thing I could say is that for years I sought a compatible partner before discovering that a lot of the incompatibilities were in me. that I wanted different things from a partner. To give you an example, and I don't think I'm alone in this, there's a way in which I wanted a partnership with a bunny, not a buddy. Because I wanted a very attractive partner, a very feminine partner, and I also wanted an ally and thought and all of that. So that's that's something I gotta reconcile on myself. You can't necessarily get both of those things. Or another example is I want an equal. But I also want a margin of security. I prefer my partner to want me more than I to need me more than I need my partner. Well that's an incompatibility in me. You can't actually have both. So if you're single and you're having trouble finding someone, that's one place to look. Look not just for compatible partners, but compatibility within you, but compatibility between the things you you want from a partner.
1: Well, Jeremy, you've given us and our listeners a lot to think about, a lot of great stuff, some useful information on de-escalating arguments, and we will definitely have to have you back on to talk more about these deeper philosophical topics. So why don't we finish up by having you tell our listeners where they can find you, and then we'll say goodbye.
2: Good. I can be emailed, believe it or not, at, at com. That's my initials at my name. And also, you can friend me on Facebook. I have lots of people who friend or follow me. I keep this conversation going live there, and I address questions when they come up. And, of course, the Psychology Today site. And also, I just want to make this clear. I may have sounded like I was talking broader philosophy when I got onto the question of what to love and what not to love. I don't think of it that way at all. I'm talking everyday mundane decisions making for me it's one and the same so if i ever sound highfalutin by bringing up big questions i've failed because i'm really only talking about what we all are dealing with everyday life
1: oh yeah absolutely i i didn't get that I, i guess it's refreshing to take that broader perspective because yeah that is the reality of what we all are going through
2: yeah me too me too
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. All these links will be on your show notes page so our listeners can access that. And again, thank you for taking the time and we appreciate it. It was an excellent interview.
2: Great. Glad to hear it. And have me back anytime.
0: Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't signed up for our 14-day Happy Couple Challenge yet, head on over to our website at com forward slash 14 to sign up today.
1: You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com.